Good morning, lovely saunterers. Welcome to another saunter in the sunny town of Weymouth. And we today are sauntering again in the book of Hebrews. And we're looking at chapter six. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, what I want to say right up front is this is a big old chapter with some controversial stuff in it. So I'm going to pray that God will help us and that we'll, we won't get lost in the process. So Lord Jesus, I pray that as we look at your word, your spirit would breathe on us and bring it to life and make it real and relevant and connect with our hearts, Lord. And I pray that you will speak to us and pour faith and hope into us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we go. Good morning, Fran. <clears throat> so chapter six of Hebrews. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. Let's pause there. So what he's saying is we are going to actually move on from the constantly going over the same things. He says the first things, the elementary things, the first things, the beginning, the foundations. Good morning, George and Lisa and Ingrid. Great to see you. So he says we're going to leave these things behind, uh, leave these things on one side for a second and go on to talk about some mature things, some things to do with completion, um, where we're going with all this. But he is interested in the things that he identifies as foundational. Number one, repentance, changing our heart, changing our mind towards God from dead works, from pursuing things that just result in death to um, faith in God, faith towards God. So it's this repentance, turning around, this is a foundational principle. This is a first thing, repentance. Then faith towards God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We'll discover that later on in the book. Good morning, Sarah. And then he lists in these foundational things or these first things, instruction about washings or baptisms, the laying on of hands, interesting that this is a foundational thing that the actual something happens when we lay our hands on somebody and that would be to do with to receive the holy spirit or the impartation of the spirit of god the to receive healing also to lay hands on elders this is something that is foundational he's saying so we're going to move on from this. I would have liked him to have talked a little bit about that because that would be really helpful, I think, to, for us to have had a bit more. Anyway, this is inspired, so I'm not going to criticise what he's left out. It would be for a reason. So the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So he's saying these things, laying on hands, resurrection of the dead the fact that this life is not all there is but there is a resurrection a hope of resurrection a life after this one with a brand new body and a whole new different kind of life possibilities and so on that is a foundational truth of the gospel we can't kind of ignore it sweep it away the fact the resurrection of jesus fundamental to the gospel right and eternal judgment however scary that concept is for us 
It is in there. It's a foundational truth. It's one of the first things. It's very, very important. It's not a popular topic among preachers these days because we want to stay off all of that kind of possibility of being lost forever because that sounds awful and unconscionable or whatever, or unthinkable, should we say. And yet, it's a first thing. It's a foundational thing. Without eternal judgment, the cross makes no sense at all. Why would Jesus die to save us from something if there wasn't anything much to save us from? Do you know what I'm saying? So, right, here we go. Verse 3, he says, and if God permits, we're going to do that. So, as he's writing, he's conscious of the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and is beneficial for us. It's for training and in righteousness to teach us the way of life we believe that god lives in his word that he speaks to us today through it and so as the writer here is under that direct inspiration of the holy spirit he's conscious and he's thinking this is where i feel we're going the holy spirit is directing me and if god permits that's what we're going to do so i love that submissive heart it's really really helpful and he says, verse four, now this is where it gets technical and people get into deep water over. So it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So it's impossible for this person and have tasted the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, what that sounds like is that the writer here is saying that actually, if you've become a Christian and you've been baptized or you've come into Jesus, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit and you've begun to walk with him if you then fall away there isn't a way back there isn't any way of turning and coming back so repentance is about changing our hearts changing our minds about Jesus and coming back to him or turning around to face him for the first time and walking with him from that point on repentance is the way back to God from wherever we are whatever state we're in but it seems as if the writer to the hebrews is saying actually there is a point where repentance is not an option that is terrifying and really really sober so let's just think a little bit about the context of the book number one he's writing to the hebrew people so he's writing to jewish people number two he's saying although this is still speaking to us because as Gentile believers were grafted in by faith into God's covenant people. And so we become part of that, all of his promises. And so it's to us as well. So those who have believed who are Gentiles, it absolutely is for us as well. But he's, this initially was written to, Gen, uh, sorry, to Hebrew believers. He's been saying 
Let us not let us pay close attention, chapter two, to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The idea is there of holding on to it and not letting it go, not drifting. And we've talked about that, haven't we? We've talked about that a lot. This idea that if we do nothing, if we neglect it, we'll drift away. And then what what hope is there for us if we drift away from this great salvation? No, sorry, my studio audience is barking. (laughs) Barking mad. And so... He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So this is like right there in the beginning of the book. We're seeing this is really serious. We need to take this seriously. Then in chapter three and four, we look, we, we were, he was admonishing us not to harden our hearts. If we hear the voice of God today, let's not harden our hearts. Now that's true if we're hearing it for the first time or we're hearing it for the thousandth time the voice of God, we must keep our hearts tender. And and it seems as if he's saying that it's possible to allow our hearts to become hard and to become ultimately rebellious. So he talks, when he's talking about the Hebrews in the wilderness, he says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So hardening our hearts is the beginning of rebellion it's where rebellion takes place in our hearts it's like i know better than god and that's the the so he it goes on in multiple places really throughout what we've been reading in the context of how we've been reading it we've been seeing this warning uh, about staying sharp staying close staying tender staying humble before god and so um, even the Apostle Paul talks about, I'm going to be really careful about the way I live because I don't want to find that I've preached to other people and ultimately have become disqualified myself. Um, Jesus said the one who endures to the end will be saved. There is a very strong um, sense throughout the New Testament that actually even though none will pluck us from the father's hand and and this kind of thing and um that you know our salvation is sure it's 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 founded on the word of god yet nonetheless there are warnings and little there's there's a tone to the new testament that i i feel is sobering enough for us to take seriously that we should not play fast and loose with god's kindness and so we know that Pharaoh, when when Moses was trying to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, Pharaoh's heart became hard. And it says at one point that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you think, hold on a minute, what's going on here? Pharaoh, and even though Pharaoh saw the pain that his hard heart was causing to his own people, he seemed unable to change from that tack he'd got on. And I think the, the the concern for me, and I think what's behind this scripture is that there is a track we can get into of rebellious and hardness towards God where actually repentance isn't possible anymore because we've set our, our hearts on a course of action and we've determined in our hearts that we're not, that we've abandoned him and we, we know better. And so that's a really, really scary thing. Having said all of that, 
we have got glorious stories that all of us know of people who had started out well and seemed to kind of fall away and then God in his incredible kindness has pursued them like the prodigal son and or at least woken them up brought them to a place of sanity in the pigsty and they've turned and come back to the Lord and they're doing better than ever before so we we all many of us who've what would God or at least uh, any amount of time will have stories like that we know people who've got that testimony so I, I really feel that this this is a warning not an abandoned hope scripture this is a warning don't allow your heart to become so hard that that repentance isn't an option anymore but it's more of a sense of be be aware of the pitfalls be aware i i know addicts right uh, who are addicted to alcohol and drugs and this kind of thing and they've made choices and choices and choices and and the choices are now driving them so they're not in control of that choice anymore but they are being driven by the choice and i think that that we need to be really aware that that it is possible even as somebody who has um, started out well and been following god to allow our hearts to become hard and then to possibly even miss the very thing that god called us for in the first place and miss that that incredible gift of salvation good morning joan and good morning jean good to see you so i'm sure people will have some thoughts about that please do comment i'm not i'm not a i'm not trying to assassinate time honored christian beliefs but i'm just saying that there is enough warning in the bible about and jesus himself said he who endures to the end there's something about continuing to walk with god and i think the book of the hebrews up until now has been given us that context and given us that sense of sobriety about our faith it's like yeah this is awesome we have a great high priest i mean we even read didn't we um that this high priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and wayward and so that's the heart of god but it does seem that we can lock ourselves into a course setting that takes us right away from him and then i really i don't know what ha what happens then because to um yeah to fall into deep sin and apostasy and all that kind of stuff those words i think is just horrible and anyway god is merciful and kind and so let's let's keep our sights on him but at the same time let's be sober about how we live and and work out our salvation with fear and trembling verse seven for land that is drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from god but if it bears thorns and thistles it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned now again we have the parable of the seed thrown on the ground and some of it was good soil and it bore good fruit and some of it was bad soil and didn't really grow or the seed got choked by the weeds and stuff like that 
God has planted his seed in our hearts. He's given us these things. This, this word talks about you've partaken of the Holy Spirit. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. It's the same word we have when we talk about the bread and wine being, um, we're partaking of the Lord's body and blood when we take the bread and wine. And so it's a really serious partaking of, Peter talks about partaking of the divine nature. It's a slightly different word, but it's that same sense of sharing the very nature of God. And so if we're going to share these incredible heavenly gifts and receive them into our human body and begin to operate in those, those incredible gifts of his grace, God is expecting a return on that. He's the gardener. So having given us his spirit, he's expecting a return on that investment that he's made. So anyway, you can read it and reflect on it. And I'm obviously in half an hour, I am not the final word on the book of Hebrews chapter six. So verse nine, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. So even though we can bring this kind of warning, he's saying, actually, do you know what? I'm confident that you guys are doing a lot better than that. And that you, you know, there's something much better. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Right. John the Baptist says, produce fruits in keeping with repentance. If we have been truly saved, there will be an evidence of God's fruit being brought out in our lives. It will become obvious. People will look at us and think, wow, they're different. These people are different. I know what it is, but there's something about them. And verse 10, here we go. God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Again, to the end. So verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So he's saying, actually, do you know what? God's not going to overlook the the wonderful things you've already done for him or you're already your labor of love, the labor born out of love and the service you've shown. He's not like going to erase all of that. He he sees that and that's that that blesses him and pleases him. And that's the kind of fruit he's looking for. So it's not like we're going to suddenly be all terrified and living in fear that God's about to wipe us off of his, uh, rub our name out of his book or tear the page out that we're on. No, not at all. In fact, he's he's not going to overlook the fruit that we've already borne and he and still do. But then then there's this again, this strong admonition, this encouragement, this oh, come on, urging from the writer. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same full assurance of hope until the end. It's like we haven't finished until it's done. We haven't finished the race until it's over. You know, and, and we we keep running this race and sometimes we get tired and sometimes we get weary. Sometimes we incur an injury en route, but we endure to the end. It's the, the race of our lives. We keep We keep running this race with full assurance of hope until the end. And we saw, didn't we, that he said... 
We are that house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. It talks about enduring to the end in the book of Revelation. Those who endure to the end are blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and that promise is made several times in the book of Revelation. And so the writer to the Hebrews is really just urging us on to not get not get sort of dull and weary in the middle of the race, but to keep running, to keep running. I'll tell you a little <laughs> story to lighten the tone. I did a marathon with Josh. It was the Portland Coastal Marathon. First marathon Josh had ever done. He's a big lad. He's my son. He's six foot three. He's much bulkier than me. Strong boy. And not really what you would call a distance runner typical build. Anyway, so we've run about 20, I don't know, 24 miles. We've got two left to do. Or two and a bit because a bit more. Um, and uh, so um, he's got cramp. We're trying to get this cramp out of his big leg muscles. It's difficult. And every time you try and run, the cramp starts to activate again. And suddenly he's like going to do it. <laughs> We're like, I'm saying, Josh, you can do it. You can do it. Let's just keep jogging back until we get there. Let's just finish. And suddenly he's got this spurt of, um, I don't know what it is, some spurt of Joshy superpower coming out. And he starts to run and he's picked up the pace. And actually we ran at a much faster pace for the last couple of miles. And we came in and it was a, it was a great result. We did, we, we did really well and we finished the race. And... And and sometimes we just need that fresh burst of um, encouragement from someone to come on, you can do it. We can do this. Let's let's run together. Let's come alongside. So where he talks about encouraging one another daily, let's encourage one another daily to keep running this race. And and the writer to the Hebrews is doing precisely that. But verse twelve is so interesting. He says, "So that you may not become sluggish." but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So sluggish is the same word there he talked about previously, about becoming dull. You're dull of hearing. You're not hearing God properly because you've become dull. And he's. this is the same word, sluggish or dull or languid, lackluster. It's all that whole thing. But so one part of our job and our commitment to each other surely has to be to cheer each other on, encourage one another on so that we don't become dull, but we in, become imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now he's going to start talking about Abraham, right? Abraham was in his 90s. He was a really, really old guy. He was 90, I think, or something by the time he, I've forgotten, age, ugh, I'm so preoccupied with something else. So um, he, he uh, by the time the promise of Isaac came to fruition, and yet by faith and patience, somehow Abraham kept going. And as we read through chapter 11 later on, we'll discover that it, he didn't, the, the Hebrews looks back on this guy and says he didn't waver through unbelief. It's amazing. But yet he obviously had days where oh, he must have thought, is this really going to happen? Is this ever coming about? 
Verse 13 then, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. So God can't say, I swear by, you know, someone greater than himself. He just says, I swear by myself. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make this promise, but just for your sake, I'm going to swear on it. But I'm swearing on myself. I can't. And so saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise great word abraham having patiently waited obtained the promise and that is such a word for you and me whatever stage of receiving god's promises are whatever particular promise we're thinking of it's by faith and patience having patiently waited obtain the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation so even in court we do that don't we verse 17 so when god desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of his purpose he guaranteed it with an oath so he's trying to say listen i am not going to change my mind i'm not going back on this i swear by myself this is going to happen and so by two unchangeable things in which it number one it's impossible for god to lie so in so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for god to lie we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us once again hold fast it's like we do have hope. We do know that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We know that whoever comes to God in faith, he doesn't turn us away. He doesn't, he, you know, and and so we have this, the all of these great and glorious promises, but let's hold fast to them. Let's hold fast and that, let that govern the way we choose to live today. So we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the, the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, right, real quick, the curtain there that he's speaking about, the hope that's gone behind the curtain, it can sound a little bit cryptic. It's a bit like the Wizard of Oz. The curtain that he's talking about was this massive thick curtain that separated the ordinary people and the the ordinary business of the temple from the most holy place which is the holy of holies where god reserved for himself and the ark of the covenant this special gold box was there and his glory was so powerful in that place that it shone like a bright light and even the high priest we've already said could only go in there once a year having already made a sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of the people and in that place of ah oh, intimate glory the presence of god shining all around our hope which is Jesus. Our hope is a person. It's not a belief system. It's a person. Our hope is a person. And he's gone into that holy place. He's actually torn the curtain completely in two. And he's invited you and I to come into that holy place through him. And so our hope is like a steadfast anchor to the soul. And we were talking about drifting, weren't we? In chapter 2, we were saying drifting is what we do if we do nothing in the sea. So here we go. We have an anchor. 
And that anchor is the anchor of the soul. It's the one that roots us and and settles our hearts. So we don't we don't go around thinking, oh, am I saved today? Am I not? Am I saved? Am I not? Because we have this hope, this anchor of the soul that Jesus has done it for us. He's made a way in he's torn that curtain in two. He's invited you and I into the holy place of God's glorious presence to be forever and ever and ever and ever. So it starts now and goes on and on for all eternity. So Jesus has gone, verse 20, as a forerunner on our behalf. So again, we're talking about on behalf of men. It's not angels he helps. He hasn't done this for angels. He's done this for you and me. Come on. This is so incredible. He's done this for you and me. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we're going to find out about Melchizedek tomorrow. But in the meantime, let us just settle our hearts with that confidence that Jesus has gone through into that holy place. He's the anchor of our soul. And let's cling on to that day by day and live for him like our lives depend on it. Have an amazing day. God bless you. Lots of love to you all. And if you've enjoyed this saunter, please do like it and share it and pass it on. Share the love and it's all good.